will be reading tonight again from John 8, verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? She said, No one, Lord. Oh, sorry. Um, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. This winter, we uh, spent four weeks studying healing shame. And quite a bit of conversation came up around that theme, uh, a lot of, uh, I think, good energy around that theme. And a lot of the questions and the, the notes that came to me were, were specifically about the, the, the tender and intimate subject of healing sexual shame. And so uh, Paige and I, who helps me with the preaching here, decided that we'd spend three more weeks uh, talking about healing sexual shame. Uh, we're going to spend it in John 8, 1 through 11, uh, a story about Jesus restoring a, a woman to sexual wholeness. And our goal is just to slowly and prayerfully reflect on the story with you and learn what we can about healing sexual shame. And, uh, last week, I introduced it to you. This week, uh, we'll go verses 2 through 9, and then Paige will preach on the concluding verses uh, next week. Uh, and Douglas, our youth pastor, has been communicating with uh, middle school and, and teenagers about your needs, and, um, and, and hopefully you've all been in contact with him, and uh, this isn't a surprise. Well, last week we spent most of the, uh, the night introducing this story to you, placing it in the broader narrative of John's gospel. Jesus came to bring life. And the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John are illustrations of the different ways that he brings life. And this story of this interaction with uh, the woman uh, is one of the pictures of how Jesus brings life in the Gospels. And as we started to talk about this last week, um, 
I, I acknowledge that I felt somewhat anxious about it. I don't feel like I'm an expert on it in any way. Uh, matter of fact, it's probably one of the last things I'd rather talk about with anyone. <laughs> and I asked you to give me feedback um, uh, about it so that we could kind of make sure we're doing our best job. I think I said that I'd rather do this imperfectly than not do it at all. And you did give feedback, and I, uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, I really do. Uh, good, loving, kind feedback, and it really made me think. Um, and I wanted to respond to two questions that came up uh, a number of times last week before we, we look at the passage. Um, the first one, you said, Doug, that some of the church fathers had distorted or even had non-scriptural views of sex. But you didn't remind us of the critical role the church fathers played in handing down our faith. A church that practices consensual orthodoxy needs to appreciate what the church fathers gave to us, often at great cost. I think that is a really, really good uh, observation. And thank you for making it. Several of you did. If you come into my office, you'll see 33 volumes uh, on one shelf that are the writings of the church fathers. You'll see another shelf with books Uh, explaining the writings of the church fathers. Uh, I value them deeply. The the church fathers uh, lived between 100, it depends how you count it, and 800 AD, and they passed on and clarified apostolic tradition. They came together at least six times in great ecumenical councils, and they worked out important areas of doctrine like the Trinity, the Incarnation, uh, the person and nature of Christ. They also affirmed which books we would have in the canon, and they drew up all of the great creeds. And some of them gave their lives in defense of the faith. Now, at All Souls, if you're guests here, I know this is review for those of you that have been around a while, we practice this idea of consensual orthodoxy, and that means that our doctrinal statement is the creed, the Nicene Creed, and we call that consensual orthodoxy, orthodoxy, right belief, consensual, formed by consensus or formed in a council. So that's what we mean when we say consensual orthodoxy. Now, the way that works out is we believe all scripture is inspired, and we believe that every believer is to order their lives under the authority of scripture. And all Christians at, at all places in all times affirm the core beliefs of the Nicene Creed. But Faithful Christians often disagree on important matters of biblical interpretation that fall outside of the creed. And so, following Paul's lead in Romans 14, we encourage you to carefully study God's word, discern with others what you think it means, and obey it. And when we disagree, we encourage you to honor one another's journey and keep studying scripture together. So, the church fathers have a very important role in the life of our congregation, and I I want you to understand that. I still think that many of the fathers got sex wrong. Um, I think they were influenced by Neoplatonism and Gnosticism. Uh, But that does not discredit the magnificent work they did in handing down apostolic orthodoxy. And this is something that's hard to understand, but the, the Bible's inspired, the church's teachers are not. And every Christian teacher, including this one, is influenced by the spirit of the age that he or she preaches in. Uh, Over time, the church sees errors and clarifies them. Uh, Martin Luther uh, recovered the doctrine of justification by faith. Uh, He also said some horrible things about Jewish people. 
And so looking back, we acknowledge that, we reject that, but thank God for the truth that he passed on, and so it is with the fathers. The second question that came up, this was the, the, the top feedback I got last week that came up many times. I'm confused by your description of how you'd pastor a person coming to you with questions about their sexual orientation. Uh, could you clarify that for me? Let me try again. Um, if, if you come to my office and share with me that you have questions about your sexuality, um, here's how our time together might look. Uh, first, um, I will thank you. Uh, you have given me uh, a profound gift by sharing that with me. And then I will listen. I need to hear your story. We practice slow church here, so we'll sit together as many hours as you need to to share your story. And if you want to keep meeting, we'll read some scripture together. And as I've said, faithful Christians read the texts on homosexuality differently. And we'll sit with those texts. We'll look at them. We might read some books together if you want to. We might start with a, a one published by Zondervan recently called Two Views on Homosexuality, the Bible and the Church. And we might read some other things together. And we will pray. Uh, and we will trust that God's word will be at work in us. And that God's work in both of us will lead us to where we need to go. Now let's return to our passage. What do we learn here about the healing of sexual shame? Well, it takes place at the end of the Feast of Booths. And Jesus is teaching on the temple steps. Uh, the people are drawn to his vision of the kingdom of God. He's growing in popularity, and the religious authorities are alarmed, and so they set a trap, the text says. They bring a woman caught in adultery before Jesus, and they say, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? And so here's the, the dilemma that they were setting him up. Uh, in a manner similar to other ancient cultures, the law of Moses did call for the stoning of both the man and the woman in the sin of adultery. But Roman law forbid the Jews from putting anyone to death for a crime. So if Jesus called for the stoning of the woman, he'd be breaking Roman law, and then maybe the Romans would get rid of him. They're also trying to discredit his credentials as a rabbi before the people. If he supported the Mosaic law and called for stoning, he would be seen as not compassionate. If he rejected the law and called for mercy, he would be seen as breaking the law of Moses. Now, there are a lot of unpleasant details about this text. If we were going to study it carefully, uh, why did God's law call for that kind of a punishment? Where is the man in this story? Um, but our goal tonight is simply to talk about healing sexual shame. And I want to acknowledge this isn't a, a primer saying everything there is to say about how to heal sexual shame. I don't know of a text in Scripture that does that. This is just one look, the start of a conversation. The woman in this story is shamed. Uh, the scribes and Pharisees drag her through the crowded streets, thrust her, quote, in the midst of the crowd that had gathered to hear Jesus. This will be a public spectacle, a public shaming. She never speaks. She's alone. She has no advocate. And all of this is done in the name of religion. Now, I believe there's a difference between sexual guilt and sexual shame. 
Jesus will talk about guilt in the last part of the story. Guilt leads to forgiveness and healing. Shame, however, leads to death. And in this case, it literally leads to death. The religious leaders want to kill her for what she has done. They want to annihilate her. They want to obliterate her. They want to cut her off from her people. And that's what shame does. It it obliterates us. So this woman, in some ways, is is kind of the, the patron saint of anybody that's been abused and experienced sexual shame by the church or by organized religion. And a number of you have sent me um, some very painful and profound notes that I've asked permission to, to share. And, and, and by the way, it gives me no joy to share these things. And I, and I don't intend to, to keep preaching on a topic of this uh, heaviness. Um, I, I'm not, in Lent, first time in my life I've looked forward to Lent. <laughs> hopefully it will be a, uh, an easier subject. But... I do say I, I do sense that the spirit, at least in the Western Church, is calling her to repent over our failure to protect people sexually and to, to help people live in a biblical sexual integrity. I, I think we we have failed uh, in, in many many ways, and so in this moment, I'm, I'm trying to acknowledge that. Uh, one of the things that's so hard about this is well-meaning people who are trying to pass on biblical truths and raise their families and lead their churches in biblical ways uh, often wind up causing shame. I don't think anybody intends to get up and do that in the morning, but it happens. A friend wrote me this week. He grew up in a devout, faithful Christian family. He said, at a young age, I was inappropriate with my younger sister. I was told that if I did it again, my parents would lock me up in my room at night with a padlock on my bedroom door. And if that didn't stop me, they'd give me away to the state of Tennessee. I was horrified. I said, what if we had a fire and I could not get out? I was told they did not care. The way they handled my actions was a very traumatic experience for me. I decided that Jesus' death on a cross covered everything but this one sin. That's where my sexual addiction started. I learned it was better to keep it a secret than get caught. Sexual sin rages in secrecy. Now, I'm sure his parents were trying to help him and and help their their daughter, but it wound up causing great shame. Another friend shared a a dream with me. Uh, In the dream, she has a pistol, and she's trying to kill the part of herself that It symbolizes her sexuality. Uh, She has struggled with sexual intimacy all of her life. And she told me that we talked about it, that the shaming messages that she heard in church growing up about sex left uh, her with an unconscious belief that her sexual desires were dangerous and must be destroyed. Now, one of the things that's kind of confusing about this as a pastor is um, many people... Uh, have been raised in these same churches and uh, flourished uh, sexually. And I want to acknowledge that. Um, This is not everyone's experience. There's this crazy website about this book by Joshua Harris, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, that a lot of people read uh, many years ago. And he's gone out on kind of an apology tour now, um, saying something to the effect that he would have said it differently if he sold like a million and a half copies. So uh, it was a very popular book. And it's so interesting to read the comments. Um, Many people were profoundly helped by the book. 
And many were profoundly hurt by the book. And so one of the things that we're trying to acknowledge just here tonight is uh, talking to those of us that have been, been, been hurt. Now, I did not appreciate how much gay Christians experience sexual shame until we uh, uh, started this series. And a number of you have written to describe your experience. Um, if, if you've taken our pilgrimage class, which is our new members class, you've read an article that Logan Mahan and I wrote about our journey together. Uh, Logan is a dear friend. He leads a men's group that I'm a part of. Um, he's also gay. We do not see everything in Scripture the same way. But Logan has taught me a lot about what it's like to be a gay Christian. And he wrote me a powerful letter this week describing his own experience with shame. And before I read just a part of it, I acknowledge that in this room we have profoundly different beliefs about uh, homosexuality. I acknowledge that. Um, One of the things I love about our church uh, is the fact that we somehow stay together around very important things, even when we disagree, when our culture seems to be exploding over those things. It's one of the things I love about our church. Um, I want to acknowledge that. And, 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 and I just want to say, as I read this, the reason why I'm reading this is I believe that whatever side you are on in that uh, theological understanding of homosexuality... Um, we all must have deep and profound compassion for the experiences of our gay brothers and sisters and the shame that they are experiencing. Uh, How you choose to relate and love and care for them may be differently than how I choose, but I am reading this because I want us to understand, and I had five similar notes this week. He starts off by quoting something he wrote in a college journal. He said, In my college journal, nestled in between Bible study notes, worship song lyrics, and really bad poetry, was this line from my 19-year-old self, dated Saturday, July 18, 2009. I believed when I was younger, he wrote, that life was a progression. I believed I would always be getting better. But I'm not. I'm so lonely. I will always be sexually perverse. I will always be alone. How can I spend the rest of my life longing for both God and man and having neither? Is there a curse worse than this? Today I can feel God's absence. Then, currently, he wrote this. While some gay Christians conclude that a life of celibacy is the right choice for them, I eventually came to a different conclusion. My boyfriend Adam and I have been together for about two years. I'm an active member of my church. I have a close relationship with my pastor. I lead a small group of men once a week. And yet I still often feel that I'm dirty, that I'm inherently sexually perverse. When my relationship is troubled or when I fall short of the ideals I have for that relationship, I still sometimes hear a voice that says, you didn't just make a mistake, you are a mistake. The voice tells me that my true self is somehow irredeemable as long as I'm gay. The difference now is that I don't believe that voice is the voice of God. I think it's the voice of shame. I still often don't feel welcome in Christian circles. Sometimes I don't even feel welcome at all souls. But even as I've struggled to feel at home in the larger capital C church, many of you have propped up little churches for me. You've given me space to tell my story when others wouldn't. 
You've listened to how your words and actions hurt me, even though it was uncomfortable for you to do so. You've listened patiently and strived for understanding, even when you disagreed with my conclusions on sexuality. You've listened to me complain about how hard it is to live in Knoxville as a gay man. Shame has receded as God has revealed himself through you, my little churches. And when the voice of shame is louder than the voice of God, I can still hear your voices saying, you do belong, you are loved, and we see you. And if you would like the, the whole letter, uh, he uh, is happy for me to send it to you. Now, there is a, another source of sexual shame that this verse at least reminds us of, and that is uh, sexual abuse. Um, the woman in the story is not technically an abuse victim, but much of her experience is similar to that of sexual abuse. She is, quote, caught in adultery. And the, the Greek word for caught means to be seized, to have someone lay hold of you. Uh, Mark uses this word, catalambano, when a man is overtaken by a demon. So we don't know the details of the story, but we can assume that she is overpowered physically and dragged against her will to the temple. So she's been physically threatened to the point of death. She has no voice. She's powerless. The system she's a part of works to destroy, not heal her. And sadly, these are many of the marks of uh, sexual abuse. And perversely, tragically, many victims of sexual abuse, male and female, often blame themselves for the abuse and suffer silently with profound sexual shame. Well, how does Jesus move towards this woman's shame? Well, in verses 7 to 9, he speaks to the shaming community. And in verses 10 to 11, he speaks to the shamed woman. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, I, I think this is important. that Jesus does talk about sin in this painful story. And uh, Paige will look more carefully at that next week. Um, he does address the sin of the shaming community, and he addresses the sin of the shamed woman. And, and I don't want to build a whole case out of that, but I do want to suggest that whatever healing shame looks like, uh, at some level it needs to include some conversation about sin, that as Christians think about our sexuality, that needs to be a part of our conversation as well. The Greek word here is hamartia. It means to err. The ancient Greek writers used it to describe a fatal flaw in a hero that leads to his or her downfall or getting lost on a wrong road. And so uh, the biblical writers use hamartia to describe destructive ways of living that lead to our downfall or what happens when we begin heading down the wrong road morally. And that assumes something, that there are some ethical roads that are better than others, that all moral choices are not equal, and that there are ways of using our bodies that eventually destroy us. We need to have that as part of our background as we think about that as Christians. And when we sin in a sexual area of our lives, like any other area of our lives, we can be forgiven. And sometimes what we need is not so much freedom from shame, but just freedom from guilt with good old-fashioned confession and forgiveness and the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
I've read a lot and listened to a lot in preparation for this series, and, and, and I'm, I'm struggling with, with, with something. And I, as, you, as you'll hear, there are not a lot of answers here tonight. I'm trying to point in a direction and raise a conversation. But I'm thinking, for example, of one book I finished recently uh, about sexual shame among Christians. And the author is a creative, loving pastor... And her, her heart is broken over the many people she knows who've experienced sexual shame at the hands of religious authorities. And she tells her stories tenderly. She challenges the distorted ways the church has taught about sexuality in the past. And as I read this book, in many ways, I think, this sounds to me like Jesus. The kind of people that are drawn to her, uh, that feel safe with her, that feel accepted by her, reminds me of the Gospels. But there is almost nothing in the book about sexual sin. Um, There is almost nothing in the book about sexual roads that ought not to be taken. Her attempts to reimagine Christian sexual integrity, in a word, seems to say the church messed it up. It hurt a lot of people. Just do what you want and be careful. And to me, that is swinging too far in the other way. And here's the challenge, and, and I, want to, I don't have the answer, uh, but maybe we could talk about it. I don't know how to preach and teach and talk faithfully to Scripture in community uh, about sexuality and avoid shaming. Uh, our track record is bad on this. There must be a way to do it. Because God's word leads to freedom. God's will is that we would be free. God's principles lead to freedom. God's patterns lead to freedom. So there must be a way that we can talk about this and encounter freedom. I do know that I have seen something very holy take place uh, this winter as people like Ruthie have met with others to share their stories of sexual shame and encounter grace and love. And I'm, I'm seeing Christ break out in those kind of environments. Well, Jesus tells them that anyone without sin is permitted to throw the first stone. He bends down and he starts to write in the book, in the book, in the dirt. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. There's another sermon about that. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. I, I, I think Jesus is saying something like this. Yes, community, there is sexual sin, but it is no worse than the other sin, including the sin in your heart. Guys, get this in perspective. We're all sinners in need of grace. If we were all stoned for our sins, there'd be nobody left to throw a stone. And I want our church to be a place where, where men and women are healed from sexual shame and Uh, Boys and girls are given a hopeful, joyful Christian vision of sexual integrity. And and I I think one of the steps we can take to move towards that vision is to refuse to make sexual sin the great and unforgivable sin. I think that is a step in the right direction. Twenty years ago, I sent out my last church discipline letter to 2,000 people. At the time, our church practiced, uh, not this church, a form of church discipline where the elders following Matthew 18, 15 to 17 confronted a person we felt was in sin several times in several ways. And if they did not repent, we sent a letter to the entire congregation 
anyone who'd ever joined, telling them to break fellowship with them. Today, I believe that that was spiritual abuse, and I repent of it for two reasons. First, 90% of the people who received those letters had no relationship with the person in question. When Matthew instructs Christians to go to a brother who is in sin, he's writing Christians meeting in house churches, groups of 8, 10, and 12. And these kind of interactions were intended to take place within the context of close, intimate relationships. I hope we do practice Matthew 18 in our congregation. I hope everyone has people who can come to you and say, Brother, the road you're walking down concerns me. I love you. Can we talk about it? I think that's Matthew 18. It's not sending a letter to 2,000 people. But the bigger reason I, I, I think that that was wrong is this. I noticed over the span of 10 years that we practice church discipline this way, that the only sin ever addressed by church discipline was a sexual sin. The only sin. Now, I had a man in my congregation later convicted of federal crimes for business corruption. No church discipline there. We had gossipers, slanderers, gluttons, liars, greedy people, lazy people. But we only practiced church discipline for sexual sin. I think that's wrong. I think what Jesus is saying as he bends in the dirt is, yes, sexual sin matters, but it's no more nor no less than all the other sins in our community. So Jesus and the woman are left alone. And that is where shame is ultimately healed. And I look forward to Paige preaching on this next week. Mm